Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. me up as being funny on a night that I've got kind of a serious topic, so it's <laughs> the way it works, uh, but that's all right. So um, first of all, I want to honor um, Pastors Vance and Kenzie Texiera for opening their home to us for about the past year. Uh, we, were, we were a homeless church. We um, met in Pearl Harbor Kai Elementary School for a number of years, and when COVID hit and the DOE shut down everything... They, uh, I, got the, I got the call I was anticipating from the principal over there, and he said, hey, Gary, man, um, <clears throat> I hate to tell you this, but I've got to kick you guys out because they're not allowing any outside usage of the facilities. And I said, I was waiting for your call. I completely understand, and uh, we'll be fine. And so we went online for eight or ten weeks while we tried to figure out next step, and um, these folks who have this facility right here opened their hearts and their home to us. We came and met with them. They threw us a key and said, come on down. And we, we are so appreciative of them um, for the time that we've been here. And now the Lord has opened a new door because this has become a limitation to our growth. Um, there's only about 100 seats on the floor here. And we're shifting to a facility that will seat three times that or something. So... We're excited about that. Um, yeah, I want to read you this scripture from Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's, this is from the Passion Translation because I love the way it's worded here. And it says, God has transmitted his very substance into every scripture. For it is God-breathed. It will empower you by its instruction and correction, giving you the strength to take the right direction and lead you deeper into the path of godliness. Every scripture, all scripture, God breathed. And I know some of it is less um, empowering than other scriptures when you're reading through it. I, I'm just confession. I mean, I get lost in the weeds a little bit when I hear sort of, all the list of hard to pronounce names and places in the Old Testament and who's the son of whom. And, uh, you know, I get really lost in that. And I'm thinking, like, I, I know there's a purpose here, but I'm really I'm struggling with this right now. I can't find it. But that stuff's important also. And so I tend to spend way more time in the New Testament, frankly, and I've preached more out of the New Testament except lately. Uh, I found myself reading these portions of the Old Testament books that I had kind of ignored or avoided in the past or skimmed past them sort of read just to punch my I read my Bible card you know like mm, okay right um, because God has transmitted his very substance into every scripture including the parts that I tend to avoid and I found myself looking lately into this Old Testament book of Judges 
And now and then this verse just jumps off the page and stops me in my tracks. I don't know if you've had this happen, but you know, you're just reading and you got either on your Bible app or your actual paper and ink Bible. And it's just, it's almost like a, a, a verse is like spotlighted or a laser illuminated on the page. And you go like, okay, God, I feel like you're speaking to me through this. I, I need to slow down and pay some attention to what you're trying to say to me here. So this is one of those verses, just Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, when that whole generation had passed away, another generation came after them who didn't know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel. That's that verse, even just isolated from its context. It, it just really hit me hard. And I'm going to give you some context and explain, come back and explain why that verse hit me so hard. I'll read it again. When that whole generation had passed away, another generation came after them who didn't know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel. So Judges chapter 2 tells the story of the death of Joshua and his generation. And Joshua was kind of an assistant to Moses during the Exodus. He's a right-hand man to Moses. And when the children of Israel were being led out of Egypt, he, he was elevated to become a military commander. And he led the Israelites in battle. And that, that story you learned in kids' church about the walls of Jericho falling down, you know, there's a song, you know, Joshua fit the battle around Jericho. You know, you know, the, right? right? That's the Joshua. That's him. He was, that was Joshua who was marching around those walls and, and blowing the horns and you know, all that. He was one of only two people from his entire generation who were allowed to live and enter into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, two guys out of an entire generation who had headed out and started toward the promised land, only two of them were allowed to live to enter the promised land. So there's something there with him. And he lived to be 110 years old. That's a ripe old age. There's nobody in this room 110, yeah? No? Okay, all right. Um, that's a ripe old age. So given that little background and context, let's read that verse again. When, the whole when that whole generation had passed away, another generation came after them who didn't know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel. When that whole generation, what whole generation? Let's drop back a few verses to verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the rest of Joshua's life. Joshua and Caleb, the only two guys who lived long enough. They, they served the Lord through the rest of Joshua's life and throughout the next generation of elders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. And then that verse again, when that whole generation had passed away, another generation came after them who didn't know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel. So here's Joshua and Caleb, two people from an entire generation, entered the promised land. And then there was a generation right below them, immediately following them. The next generation of elders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. That was the generation it's speaking of when it says they served the Lord while Joshua was alive. And they continued to serve the Lord throughout their generation. And they are described as those who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. So one of the reasons I think they remained faithful and they continued to serve God was they had a strong role model. They had this exemplary leader, Joshua, who had, he had taken them through so much. He'd led them with honor and he was even honored by the Lord in being one of the only 
two people from his generation to enter the promised land. And the other reason I believe that they remained faithful was because they had seen with their own eyes the great things the Lord had done. Now, sometimes you will witness something that is absolutely miraculous, something that is um, inexplainable. Is that the right word? Unexplainable through natural science and everything. You'll just see something. You'll go, that was just, that was God. That was amazing. And when you've seen that, somebody can come along with an argument and try to dissuade you that you saw what you really saw. But you know what you saw and what you experienced. You know it. And so somebody with an argument is at the mercy of somebody with an experience. They have an argument. You have an experience. You saw it. You experienced it. It really happened. That's, that's real to you. And you hang on to those things that are real to you. If God's done something in your life that is miraculous, nobody can talk you out of it. If you've been like sick, I'm talking like sick, sick, like, you know, doctors say we don't know what to do. And God raises you up and heals you. Somebody can come along with all the medical and scientific knowledge they want and try to dissuade you that it happened, but you're standing here. You know that God did it. So these people had an experience. They'd seen something. They'd experienced something with their own eyes. They were alive, and they witnessed Moses coming down from that mountain carrying those tablets with the Ten Commandments etched on it. These, these were people who had witnessed that with their own eyes. They watched the walls of Jericho fall down when Joshua led those troops and that, that parade around the city. They watched it with their own eyes. They'd seen it. Now, you can come back and say, well, the walls didn't really fall down. And they go, no, nah, I was standing there. I saw the walls fell because they saw it. These are people who had been sustained and fed daily with manna miraculously when there was no food for them, but they were fed by the hand of God. You can try to explain that away all you want, but you couldn't tell them anything because they ate the food. They knew. These are people who had seen the waters of the Red Sea part, and they had personally walked across in the gap between two walls of water on dry land. You could try to explain that all the way to them all you wanted to, but they'll go, <laughs> I was there. I saw the water part. I walked across on dry land. I saw the army behind me get drowned. You can't talk me out of that. They had good leadership, and they had seen the great things the Lord had done. It says, but when that whole generation had passed away, that generation I just described, another generation came after them who didn't know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel. So a biblical generation is typically, you can think of it as about, 30, about a 30-year span. So during that time... From the exodus from Egypt until they reached the promised land was about 40 years. More than one generation it spanned. So Joshua's generation, they were the senior leaders. That, and then there was a generation just younger than them. And then the ones who had seen, they were the ones. You know, they saw the things that the Lord had done for Israel. But now here's this third generation. They might very well have been born near the end of that wilderness track. Or maybe they were born after they reached the promised land. They were that third generation. They didn't know the Lord or the things that he had done for Israel. All they had heard were the stories, but they'd never experienced anything. They hadn't seen it. They were too young to have seen it or too young to have experienced it. So I'm going to give you a little personal history. I'm going to tell you a story of generations, my own. Uh, I am third generation Pentecostal. My maternal grandmother, Olive, she was called Ollie, uh, <laughs> 
Her second husband was Otto, so it's Otto and Ollie. It was really, I don't know. But her name was Olive. And uh, she got saved in a Pentecostal revival in or around Anniston, Alabama. And I don't know the year. But she was born in 1887. So the records are a little fuzzy, a little unclear. But she got saved in a Pentecostal revival around Anniston, Alabama. And when I say revival, I don't mean what we talk about today. These things would go on for like weeks and they would go, services would go way into the night. I personally attended a revival in a tent in Athens, Alabama when I was in elementary school that went for three weeks and the services went from about seven o'clock to midnight every night. And my mother would take me home and asleep and throw me into bed. I'd get up and go to school the next day. We would eat dinner and we would go back for another night. We did it for three weeks in a row. It's not like, you know, we talk about revival now. We have some guest speaker come in for three nights. And, no, 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 no. And, and in the, the, they had, anybody here, from, anybody here from country or south or anything? Anybody, yeah, okay. You know what a brush arbor is? Put that picture of a brush arbor up there. You have that picture? I don't know. I sent those pictures to somebody. Yeah, there we go. That's a brush arbor. These were poor people. They didn't even have tents. They didn't have church buildings. They would get whatever tree branches and stuff they could, and they would build what's called a brush arbor. And they would have brush arbor revivals. They would gather. That would keep the sun off a little bit and some of the rain and wind off. And that's where they, they would meet in these kind of revivals back in, the, I'm saying olden days, but it's really like a century ago, you know, one century ago. We're not talking about the 1500s here. And um, these were poor people, mostly rural, hardworking farmers, mill workers. They were materially poor, but they were spiritually really wealthy because they were hungry for God. And then in the 1940s and 50s, I was born in, get ready for this. You know when you have to put your date on the website and there's a little wheel you spin? I have to keep spinning. It's like wheel of fortune. I hit the thing and... 1950, I was born, okay? Be 71 next month. So, um, uh, in the 1940s and 40s and the 50s, it was the era of tent revivals. And they would put these big, you know, tents, like circus tents, literally, put these tents up and have these mass big revivals. That was the era of like Oral Roberts would have a tent crusade and he would go into a town and set up a tent, go for 10 days or two weeks or whatever, and people would come in, in masses. And, and you know, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have HBO, they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have Hulu, they didn't have any of that stuff, they didn't have the internet, and something was going on in town in a big tent, they would show up because there's something going on. We're going to go find out what's going on at that big tent. And they would draw large crowds, and they didn't have good amplification normally. So most of the preachers learned to preach loud like this because they were trying to project their voice way back there in the back of the tent. And some of them learned how to preach like that, and they had this misconception that volume was equated with anointing. And sometimes... It wasn't anointing, it was just volume. Let's be honest. And there was a saying, old saying, preachers used to say is, when your point is real weak, pound the pulpit louder when your point's real weak. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And so, some of them, if you got up and talked like this in a conversational tone, they would think you just, you had no anointing whatsoever. Because you, you were not 
going loud like this, you know. That's what I grew up in, hearing that. That was one of the reasons I ran from being a pastor for so long is because I knew that was not me. And I thought that's what preachers did until God said, no, I like you the way you are. You're fine. Do what you do. That's okay. That's all right. So um, Olive, my maternal grandmother, raised her daughter, Virginia, my mother, in this Pentecostal movement. And she, in turn, raised me in it. My, ro- my roots go real deep in this stuff. And I've raised our children in it. And they're raising, well, one of them right now is already raising his children in it. And, you know, no hints. I, know it wasn't, no. <laughs> I was not doing that. <laughs> I just read that and realized how it sounded. Let's say, you know, in the same kind of tradition. But those generations, Olive, Virginia, Gary, Tori, and Joshua, we have not had identical experiences. So, like that story in Judges, things have not always been the same up and down those generations. I remember my mother telling me stories from her young days, witnessing the miraculous. And in the rural south, in churches, sometimes they, the building would be heated by a, a, a coal-burning pot-bellied stove. A little simple little wooden structure, pot-bellied stove. She's told me stories about people under the anointing reaching into the pot-bellied stove and holding up hot coals in their hand and dancing around the church. Now, I'm not advising you to do that. I'm not saying that that's mandated. I'm not telling you, you know, go ye and do likewise. I'm saying that something was going on in that building that was miraculous, and she had stories to tell about it. There were multiple multiple, multiple stories about meetings in which a room with maybe this many people in it and worship going on. And it probably didn't sound stylistically like what we heard this morning, but spiritually it was the same thing. They, they were adoring their Lord and a blue mist would hover over the crowd. Now, we would say maybe sometimes the, the terminology, like a glory cloud. You might use different terminology. But the room would fill with the presence of God in such a tangible way that it was visible in the room. Miraculous healings. Miraculous healings. Um, you know, crutches, wheelchairs, healings, that kind of stuff. And I was thinking about this and thinking about because I related in a message here, I don't know when, recently, that I remembered the first miraculous healing I had ever seen, and it was a goiter on a woman's neck immediately. You know why that stuck out so much in my mind? Is because I didn't see that many after that. My mother's brother, same generation, Virginia, he's an itinerant evangelist. His real name was... Prince, not, not the guitar player, not Purple Haze, not, no. Prince Hartley, that's his real name. Um, that's as close to royalty as my family will ever get right there. He's an uncle named Prince. He was this amazing evangelist. He, he memorized huge sections of the Bible, like word for word. King James, old school, King James Bible. And he would get up. It was not uncommon at all for him to get up during a sermon and, like, quote chapters, entire chapters, like, right, just verse after verse after verse, like, word for word for him. People started following him in their Bible, trying to see if he'd make a mistake, you know, because he just had this amazing, he just ate Scripture, just devoured it. And there was all sorts of miraculous stuff that happened in his, 
in his ministry. He's in Texas, in uh, South Texas, in a revival. Uh, he did not speak Spanish, but during his sermon, he began to speak. He thought he was speaking in tongues in the microphone. These people come rushing down to the altar, just like weeping. You know, revival breaks out. Everybody's praying for him and everything. And the pastor afterwards said, brother, you didn't tell me you spoke Spanish. He said, I don't speak Spanish. He said, well, you did. Not only did you speak Spanish, he said, these people are from like this little region in Mexico. It's a little kind of an odd sub-dialect of Spanish. And you were like, you were just like preaching the gospel to them in, not only in Spanish, but in this like really regional little dialect of Spanish. He had no idea. That was just, you know, the miraculous power of God. I know you've all seen Roadrunner cartoons, and you've seen where, you know, like Roadrunner or Wile E. Coyote would, like, run off the edge of the cliff, and they'd be out there, like, off the edge of the cliff, and they don't. This was related several times. My uncle would be up there, and he would start dancing around in the spirit, go off the edge of the stage, out there for, like, I don't know, several seconds, and then back onto the stage, not fall. People would be like, He had no idea it happened. No clue. Just miraculous stuff. But, I mean, he paid a price for this. He, he was threatened more times than I can tell you by the Ku Klux Klan. He, you know, he was in the South. Because if he got invited to go preach a revival at a, quote, black church, and he was a white guy, he would go preach a revival there because he would take any open door and just go preach there. And the clan would come visit him the next day and say, we heard you're over there preaching at this black church. I want you to stop. And he'd go, no, no, no. Gonna go. I'll be there tonight. You know where to find me. And they would threaten him over and over again. But he saw in his ministry miracles, signs, wonders, just over and over and over again. That generation. They were mostly poor folks, unsophisticated, largely uneducated. Pentecostals met in mostly at that time in small, humble buildings. The mainline evangelical Protestant churches, you know, they had the big buildings in the town square and big steeples and all that kind of stuff. But we, the Pentecostals, we were the wrong side of the tracks, people. We were the, we were the folks in the other part of town. In a small Alabama town, you'd often find the Pentecostal church down a side road behind the Dollar General or Piggly Wiggly store. Um, and in the more urban areas, they met in storefront churches. We got pictures of storefront churches here. This is what, like, urban, you know, storefront churches. Still today, a lot of small Pentecostal churches in urban areas meet in places that look like this. And it's kind of ironic that starting next Sunday, we're going to be meeting in what's essentially the 21st century version of a storefront church because we're meeting in a mall. Uh, slightly more upscale than those pictures but and it's not in the low rent district at all. But uh, yeah, that that was sort of the generation of my my mother's generation. During that era, the mid twentieth century, when I was born, our denomination held an annual general gathering. Now it's every you know four years or something, but um, every two or three years, whatever, we have a meeting. But they would have this international assembly, and on Friday nights. It was always devoted entirely to a healing service, the entire Friday night service. Always big healing service. Now, if you're um, a young person and you've gone through YWAM or Kingdom Living or some school or whatever, and you thought the idea of a, a fire tunnel or a prayer tunnel was new, it's not new at all. It's like, this is old stuff. <laughs> During that Friday night assembly healing service, they'd have ministers form two lines, 
facing each other, long lines snaking around these big, huge auditoriums, up and down the aisles. And people would walk between those aisles of people. They put that up there. They would walk between those aisles of people while people laid hands on them and prayed for them to be healed. This was, this is, these are pictures from like the 1950s. And those needing healing would pass between those two lines as ministers laid hands on them for the healing all kinds of the sickness, and it went on literally for hours. Some people would get partial healing. They'd go back to the back of the line and come back through again and say, we're not done here yet. I'm going to leave this building healed. And people would stay with them into the wee hours of the morning, praying for them. There's a, this next picture. There's a pastor from Georgia. He was suffering with cancer. They literally had an ambulance bring him and roll him in on a gurney. They gave him a mic. And this man who was needing healing himself preached the healing message that night. And the title of his message was, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Like, if he heals me, I trust him. And if he doesn't heal me, I trust him. I don't know if he was healed. But there were lots and lots of stories of people coming in wheelchairs and walking out healed. Lots of them. And more than one person was brought in on a stretcher. So... You know, where am I going? What's the relevance of all that? So my mother's generation represents that generation like after Joshua. My mother, Virginia, her brother, Prince. They saw all these great things that the Lord had done. They experienced the miraculous stuff firsthand. They served the Lord faithfully in large part because of what they had seen with their own eyes and what they had experienced firsthand. My generation represents that generation that came after them who didn't know the Lord of, or the things that he had done. Sadly, and within our movement, our, my generation's kind of a lost generation. A lot of the people my age who grew up in this walked away. They just walked away. They're doing something else now. And the reason is they heard all the stories, but they looked around and they said, well, I don't see any of that happening now. What, what's going on? There's nothing. I don't see any of this. To us, my generation, they were mostly just stories because we were not seeing or experiencing what my parents, what Virginia and Prince had told me that they had experienced. Something happened over the years. Those Brush Arbor Revival Saints, those people who would go out in a field somewhere and get sticks and branches and build a shelter, a shade, so they could have a revival. Those wrong side of the track, storefront church Pentecostals, they got educated and they got sophisticated and they moved up in the world. They were no longer farmers and mill workers. Now they were engineers and teachers and nurses and business professionals and they lived in the suburbs and they drove SUVs and they earned advanced degrees and they were a little bit embarrassed by their side road, humble meeting places. They wanted to be respectable. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to have the nice church on the town square and not meet behind the Dollar General store. Those storefront churches in the sketchy neighborhoods seemed disconnected from their newly acquired status in society. They, and when I say they, I mean my generation, they sold out. In a bunch of ways. They traded healing for health care. 
see, when you don't have HMSA or Kaiser or whatever you have, and you've only got Jesus, you better lean in and believe in health. You better believe in healing because sometimes it's the only option that you have. But, you know, we're modern and educated and sophisticated and upscale, and we've got good jobs and good incomes and good insurance and all that kind of stuff. So we, we're not going to bother God with a headache. We just take something for that. They traded radical faith for respect. They wanted to be respectable. You see, in the early days of the Pentecostal movement, we were branded with all sorts of labels. People called us holy rollers. They had, they had derisive names for Pentecostals because our services were, in their opinion, out of control. What they meant, what that means is under his control, but not ours, which is what we're, that's what we're, that's our goal. That's what we're going for is out of control. We don't want to try to control anything. We want the Holy Spirit to control everything. But when you're looking at that from the outside and you don't know what you're talking about, it's just out of control. And so people would be critical. They traded radical faith for respect. And they traded presence for prestige. You know, we're just as respectable and, and uptown as the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Baptists and the Methodists. We didn't want to be that weird church that had the emotionally charged gatherings. You know, where you might invite your friend from high school if you're a teenager and you'd come and it'd be somebody back in the back going, scaring them to death we, you know we were, we, were scared, we were scared of that we were embarrassed by that that was just like we wanted to be like everybody else we wanted to blend in and if that meant professing to be Pentecostal but practicing a weak watered down version of our heritage well okay at least we could make our services predictable and not scare off the visitors So my generation grew up hearing the stories that just sounded like ancient lore. They were so far removed from our reality to the point that at one point I started jokingly telling people that I was a semi-costal, not really a Pentecostal. Because I believed in this stuff theologically, but I just didn't see it happening in real life. We had a theoretical, intellectual knowledge of God and we learned how to look and sound like all the acceptable churches and that's a shame so I wrote this in my notes my mother's generation knew God they knew God they had seen him Provide in miraculous ways, heal in miraculous ways, deliver people in miraculous ways, do just all sorts of things. And they had tried to tell us those stories about him. But my generation just, my generation knew about God. That's all we knew. We knew, that we knew the stories. It's sort of like kids today might read in a history book about the Great Depression or about war, World War II or something. And they, they know that it happened. They acknowledge that it happened. But it's hard for them to relate to that because it, it's nothing like their life right now. It has no relevance to their life right now. 
So my mother's generation knew God. My generation knew about God. And I am determined that my children's generation will know about God. They will know God. And they will encounter God. If a generation is about 30 years, we have basically three generations in here tonight. We have in this building tonight people between the ages of zero and 30. There's, most of them are outsiders, some in here, but most of them are out there somewhere in that other room. And we have a bunch of people, probably our largest group of people in this church, between 31 and 60. And then we have, we have my people. We have this 61 to 90, and we have actually somebody here tonight who's not 90, but going to be 87 in a few days. So we literally have three generations here tonight in this building. And so I want us to wrap this up tonight by doing something, and that is... We're going to do it in reverse order. I want, if you are in generation one, that's the 61 to 90. I know that means admitting your age. I realize that. But uh, would you stand up if you're between 61 and 90? Come on. Yeah. Yes. These folks are worthy of honor, and, and there's nothing at all to be ashamed of in standing in these 61 and up age group here. But I want to pray for this age group. If, you just, if you're near one of them, can you like put a hand out somewhere? If you're, if you're just real close right there. Lord, uh, we're the generation who knew about you. And that's not a good thing. I'm so grateful to you, Lord, that in these years that we still have left, you're revealing yourself to us in the way that you revealed yourself to past generations. That we will no longer just be the generation who knew about you. But we will be the generation who experienced you in all of your power. Thank you, Lord, for these folks. Some of them um, just, just entering into this third generation season. And some of them, Lord, who are much older and much wiser. Thank you for the wisdom that you've imparted in this generation. Thank you for the faithfulness of this generation. Faith, thank you for the faithful stewardship. We stand on the shoulders of giants when we stand on the shoulders of people who have lived a long life following you and serving you. But God, you're not done with this generation yet. By any means. I'm just calling forth upon this generation that's standing right here. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Let them experience it and impart it to others. Let them see your hand at work in ways that they have only read about and heard about from their parents and grandparents. 
let this generation, Lord, be so immersed in your spirit that they will know that they will know that they will know that you are real and that you are still at work on this earth. You have not stopped working. You're still a miracle working God. Now, if you're in that next generation, two, 31 to 60, stand up and join them as they still remain standing. 31 to 60. That's going to get most of the room. Lord, this is the generation that is experiencing the miraculous right now. They are in revival right now. They are living with a passion that my generation only dreamed of having. They are seeing things with their own eyes that my generation only heard about. More, God. More, God. More, God. Pour it out on them in a greater measure. Let everyone that they come in contact with know that they have been with somebody who has been with you. Through them, Lord, let the lame walk, let the deaf hear, let the blind see, let the dead be raised through this generation. Give them a greater measure of faith than even the previous generation had, Lord, because they're going to see it with their own eyes. They're already seeing it and experiencing it with their own eyes. They're not just hearing the stories. They're living the stories right now, Lord. They're writing new chapters of the book of Acts right now. So, Lord, with this generation, we just pour into them. Let, let them come to the older folks for wisdom and guidance and advice. But, God, we just release them. We release them. We release them to follow after you and find the path that you've outlined for them. They're going to be the bearers of this revival that we're experiencing right now. And it's going to spread. It is going to spread like a fire in a field. And if there's anyone in that third generation, younger than 30, I know there's some of you in here. Stand up with us. Join us. That should pretty much get everybody up, right? <laughs> Lord, this is the generation that's going to see greater things. While that 31 to 60 generation is, is blazing the trail and setting the example, this generation that's standing now from 0 to 30, they're going to see the greater things in a greater measure. God, out of this generation that's standing right now, raise up pastors and prophets and evangelists and teachers and, 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 and missionaries and apostles. Lord, raise up from this generation that's standing right here, Lord. Not when they get older, but now, God, begin to raise up people right now in this generation. There is no junior Holy Spirit. So, God, for every child that's standing in this room, anybody who's like... Uh, uh, under 14 or 15 years old, Lord, pour your spirit into them right now. Right now. 
Let them begin to heal the sick. Let them begin, God, to proclaim your name. And we want to see all of this done for your glory. No glory unto us or any other person, God. All for your glory. There is no empire we're trying to build. We're just trying to advance your kingdom. I thank you, Lord, for what I'm feeling in this room right now, God, which is fresh commitment to you. I'm just, I'm feeling it so strongly in this room right now, Lord, that there's people here right now who are saying, I want this, I want this. And so we say yes and amen. Yes and amen. We bless your holy name today. In the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5 live at Kahala Mall. Aloha.